you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 17, as we begin to consecrate our thoughts around a final solution to a lingering problem, apparently, that was taking place, as you and I know, with the children of Israel. They are at the zenith of their frustration with God, and uh, they have behaved irreverently, and they have taken on measures that have left them devastated, as you also know, because God has intervened to stop the whole nation from a treasonous act of seeking to overthrow the servants that God had raised up to lead them into a life of blessing that could not be described to them at that time other than we're headed to the land of milk and honey. Old Testament language describing what it meant to be wealthy and prosperous. Milk and honey uh, was a symbolic term for how the wealthy enjoyed the staples of life. And what God was teaching in this account was that he would bring Israel out of Egyptian bondage as slaves as the tail and not the head and put them in a place where they could be the head and not the tail. It's important when you're reading your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, so you know I have to do a a bit of catechizing here because things will evade you you if you don't think God's thoughts after him. Now, one of the things that God is doing with Israel as he's bringing them through the wilderness in preparation to enjoy their inheritance that God himself provided for them, is he's teaching them how to understand God's thoughts. He's teaching them that his ways are not their ways and his thoughts are not theirs. You and I know it, Isaiah 55. It does not mean, however, that we can't learn to think the way God thinks. In fact, your Bible tells you in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as children of the living God, we actually do have the mind of Christ. That being true does not mean you automatically think like him. You and I have to be trained to think the way God thinks. And what I mean by that is you and I have to learn how to value what God values and abhor what God abhors. This is how we know that we are walking in fellowship with him. How can two walk together except they have agreement upon what is right and what is wrong? And what God has done with Israel from the very time that he showed up in Moses and Aaron to deliver them out of Egypt was to engage in a number of expressions and manifestations that serve for them and us as tokens of the ways of the Lord. I'm just going to lift a few up so that we can understand what's going on with this thing called rods. It is important to know what's going on with this thing called rods because apparently God has chosen another set of props, another set of optics, another, another set of symbols to teach us how he resolves problems. And hence the title of our message today, Arise, Move, and Go. We're headed to the promised land, right? Let's settle this matter. Let's settle this matter. This is what you see in the opening of the verses, is it not? 
He tells Moses to tell the leaders to do certain things. And what God says is, we're going to solve this problem once and for all. I love it because I know that when God wants to solve a problem, he can. Now, again, what you and I have to keep in mind a bit is, is that the people that God is dealing with are cantankerous. That's the term I use around here. Y'all know that. It's old. It simply means that you are not easy to deal with. When you are cantankerous, you are not only easy to deal with, but you love showing it. You like talking plaintive language. You love ruffling feathers. You are agitated when someone doesn't immediately see things your way. When you are cantankerous, you let everybody know you wish you were a porcupine. That's when you're cantankerous. And the children of Israel are that way. The last verse in number 17 says, in order for him to end all their murmuring. Now, you know, you've got to be God to stop somebody that's born with murmuring in their DNA. But that's what God is up to here. And, and I think that that's a remarkable feat, don't you? Since keep up with me, I have to lay a foundation. We got to do 38 years in the wilderness. So we're not going anywhere. We got to do 38 years where the vast majority of those 20 and older have to die in the wilderness. Please pull up the last verse. Let me lay a foundation. Because after God told Moses to tell the children of Israel what he told them, which we're going to unpack, here's what they said. Here's what they said. Whosoever cometh anywhere near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Do you see it? Do you see what they, you see how they concluded the whole narrative? The whole set of instructions and injunctions. Now God's teaching them how to live. And here's what they're doing. They're concluding that we all going to die. Now, do you understand why they're saying that? They're saying that because they already know they're not going to obey God. See, so like when you don't have any intentions of doing what God says, as Proverbs chapter 8 puts it, all that hate me love death. That's verse 34 and 35, just in case you didn't know it. Right. So to not love God is to actually be on a suicide mission because without God, you'll never live. And without God, you'll never get to glory. Now, what God is doing in the wilderness, I want you to get this. I love him. He's a great teacher. God's a great teacher. He's actually the celestial shepherd leading the children of Israel in the right way. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm getting ready to explain something about the rod here in a moment. I want you to get it. But what he's doing is he's helping them understand the severity of their rebellion. The severity of their rebellion. And they got it. Notice what they say. He says, they say, if we draw near to the tabernacle of the Lord, we shall die. Now, haven't they been complaining about wanting to draw near to God, anybody and everybody, whenever they want to? Isn't that been the last couple of studies we've engaged in? We are the Lord's people. We be holy. Any of us can draw to the Lord whenever we want to. Now, that is a democratic process, is it not? But what have we not learned? We've learned that God does not allow anyone to draw near to him. We have learned that whosoever draws near to God, not being called by God and prepared by God, will die. Did that make some sense? I know you guys were in the study, so you should be able to quickly affirm what I'm saying. What God is teaching Israel and he is teaching the whole human race is you don't just come to God. You cannot get to God without a mediator. 
There has to be someone between you and God who is fit to commune with God and fit to commune with you so he can bridge the gap between you and God so that there's a successful communication from God to you and from you to God by that go-between who is called the mediator. So what I say to people in this generation in which I live, when you tell me you talk to God and you say you talk to God apart from Christ, I know that you don't talk to the true and the living God. When you tell me that you and God have a thing going on, but that thing going on is apart from his son, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes, no one comes unto the father, but by me, I know you're lying about the true and the living God. Now, the only thing you and I need to do is ask the question, why is this narrow way such an insistent principle with God? Well, they actually have the answer inherent in the statement. They know intuitively they don't qualify to stand before God. Do you understand that? God doesn't hear sinners. He won't allow, if, if you and I regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Isn't that what the Bible says? And so notice what they are learning. They're learning what Paul said in the New Testament is that the law works wrath. The purpose of the law is not for you to put on legal precepts of obedience injunctions and try to obtain favor with God by your good works. The purpose of the law is to drive you to Christ so that you can have a relationship with God through somebody that's right with God already. Therefore, God has made a point, has he not? Hasn't he made it clear to them? Uh Uh-oh, we've been going all the wrong way trying to get to God. And notice the last part, because this is really prophetic. Shall we be consumed with what? Shall we be consumed with dying? I want you to get this before I go on. Yes, you're going to be consumed with dying because you asked for it. You go back to Numbers 1, you go back to Exodus 15, all the way up. Haven't they been murmuring? Haven't they been actually prophesying, God, you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us? Have they not? Have they not been just constantly accusing God of not providing, not taking care of them, not understanding, not caring for them? Have they not been showing presumption as they overthrow, seek to overthrow Moses and Aaron and take and occupy positions of authority for themselves? Is this not arrogant? Is this not treason? Is this not foolishness? In a real sense, as we get ready to drill down into our text, they're really only getting what they ask for. Is that true? Right. They're only really getting what they're asking. Here is a a larger adumbration of theological consideration for those of you since you come to church. And you know, the world has a controversy with us on a theological level because we say things like there is one true and living God. We also say there are not all ways. All ways do not lead to God. Either that's true and God's a liar or that is not true and is filled with lies. We also say there is a hell to escape, do we not? Do we not tell men and women that the wages of sin is death? I know you don't hear it much in churches, but we preach it, don't we? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. We tell them that because God told us to tell them the end of life is that you meet your maker. And if you don't meet your maker in a right standing with him, you will perish under the wrath of God. And the Bible tells me all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not wrong. Is that what your Bible says? 
And so, you know, when you are a God-loving Christian and a Bible-loving Christian, when you start going Bible on people, that's where your issue comes in. Because your Bible is going to make it plain. There's none good. The Bible will say many people will say they're good and they, they, they take honor in their own ways. There is a way that seems right unto man. And here we come as a Christian and say, sorry, that's not right. That's wrong. And then we let them know that you have no merits of approval with God based upon your conduct. And they don't like that. But that they don't like it doesn't make it wrong. Then so you and I have to deal with a God who is willing. And I'll tell you what else I'm learning from the uh, Exodus journey through the wilderness. God is extremely patient with us. Think about how patient he is right now with these crazy fools. They watched him take out the treasonous leadership. They watched him consume them in the earth, rain fire down upon many of them. And they still turned around and said to Moses and Aaron, y'all killed the holy people of the Lord. And as I told you last week, that wasn't merely a statement of horizontal dilemma, them stuck on not knowing there is a God. They were intentionally ignoring God. I told you that. So there be, and I'm just going to make this anthropomorphically relevant to you. It's one thing when a person doesn't know you. And by, the Bible says in general, mankind does not know God. Now they do have the law of God written on their heart so that they're without excuse. But there's a sense in which humanity does not know God and they need to know him in the person of the Lord Jesus. Is that right? But when you ignore God, you are even more egregiously criminal. You're in a relationship with somebody. And that person knows you and you know them. And then they ignore you. Aren't you going to have a kind of way about that? Now, now here we're dealing with a father-son or a parent-child relationship. It's not God the father. Are these not the children? Now, shouldn't God feel a certain kind of way about them ignoring God? Because, see, this is what your world does. Your world will talk about the universe in an impersonal way as the one giving them everything. If that's not ignoring God, I don't know what is. Your world will talk as if only the only thing that's real is this horizontal dimension. And everybody, according to the Bible, are the product of God's own handiwork. In a human sense, we're all children of God, are we not? Yes, he's the father of spirits and the God of all flesh. And can you imagine men and women by the billions going around ignoring God? Doesn't God have a right to get your attention when you ignore him? In fact, he's good if he does. Is that so? And I'm laying the foundation for you to get it because this here is the insolence of children who think that they do not have to submit to their parents' authority when they're appropriately under that authority. Am I making some sense? Y'all might have had a child or two, as have I, who every now and then they walk in the house and they walk right past you and they stop at the refrigerator. Then they head up to the room and you know they didn't lost their mind. You know that, don't you? I got one brother, by, they didn't lost their mind. Have they lost their mind? I said to myself, these aren't even my kids. These are not my kids. I said, you know, America is messed up because you would never get that kind of ignorance in a third world country. Africa wouldn't go for it. You don't come in the house and not acknowledge your parents. And especially the head of the house. 
which is where we're going. But see, in my generation where I live, the deconstruction is so bad in our homes. Our kids don't know the hierarchy of respect. Here you are, don't have a roof over your head, don't have food in your belly. You can't get from point A to point B without mama and daddy. And then you're going to come into their house, eat their food, sleep in their bed without acknowledging them. This is what we're dealing with right here. This is what we're dealing with right here. Do y'all understand that? I'm telling you, I woke up this morning. I said, Lord, you are patient with us cantankerous, rebellious, hell-bound sinners. Now, we're still headed to hell. We're still headed to hell, and God's good to us in all of his temporal blessings, is he not? The Bible's clear. The mercies of the Lord are everywhere in the world. He lets his sun shine on the wicked and the righteous. No one will stand before God on that day and not say, you know what? Lord, you was good to me. No one. So let's go to work a little bit. The subtitle of our text is what I want to drive home. Let's settle this matter right away. So we're dealing with what I call the um, imposition of another set of tokens. Remember, God told Israel when they went in and tested the promised land, bring back a token. Y'all remember that? I'm teaching you about how to think the way God does. When God wants you to understand what he's up to, he'll tell you to lay hold of a small thing that looks small to everybody else, but it's supposed to be big to you because it's big to God. Number one, the cluster. Do you guys remember the cluster? The cluster was a token of God's promise to bless Israel. That's number one. The second time that God engages in a sign is when he tells the children of Israel a few chapters later to put tassels on the end of your garments. Do you remember that? The tassel is a small thing, but it becomes a mechanism of reminding Israel, reminding the people of God how good God is toward them and what kind of promises they have because God is a faithful God. So I've been teaching us how to get a hold to the tassel because that woman with the issue of blood read number 17, 16, well, numbers 14, well, and she said, if I can but touch the tassel of his garment, I can be made whole because he is Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Rohi. He is the God that is able to heal me. But it's because you hold on to the tassel. The tassel are the little symbolic elements that God, in agreement with you, shows you how when it's too big for you to comprehend, just get a hold to the tassel of a promise. You remember what that woman did? She pressed through the crowd with her eye on the tassel because she believed what God said, I am the God that healeth thee. And that's what a believer has to do to get through this world. You got to hold on to the tassel. The next little emblem that God gave was the censer, the censers. He told every man to take his censer. Remember that? Now, the censer is important because the censer says to us that before we come to God, we got to call on God. The censer was the incense that went up to God. It symbolizes what? The prayers of the saints. Let my prayer ascend to thee as incense. Y'all remember that? And again, I've said this to people, you, 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 you complain about what God hasn't given you, but frequently you're not asking him. And what the Bible says, if you ask not, you receive not. And frequently your asking is in vain and wrong because it's rooted in bad attitude. Now, God knows your heart because real prayer is not your lips nor your physical posture. It's your heart being right 
contrite with God, a broken and a contrite heart, God will never despise. But he has to give you grace to be the very thing that all of these examples are suggesting we're not. Because what these examples are suggesting is that we are a proud, arrogant, haughty, independent, autonomous people, and that God at best is a bellhop for whatever we want. But God will never ever be your bellhop. Before you die, if you think God is meant to be your bellhop, you're going to be the enemy of God. Am I making some sense? Right? God only dwells with the humble and the contrite. The high and the lofty God, Isaiah 57, 15, dwells with the broken, with the humble, with the contrite in spirit to set them on high with princes. That's your paradox. A lofty God with humble people. You want to see a blessed person? That person is humble before God. He don't play games with God. When you see people playing games with God, as Solomon said, get out the way. They're headed to the pit and don't stop them. And we've seen that example over and over again. So now I want to talk to you about point number one. Are you ready? The rod. That's the next one. The little bitty rod. We've got about 45 minutes to engage in this. And I want you to capture it. The rod, the rod, the rod. Notice what our text says in the opening verses, 17, 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, speak unto the children of Israel and take every one of them, every run of them, a what? A rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes, according to the house of their fathers, 12 rods, because how many tribes were there? And how many heads were of each tribe? One, which means 12 heads, right? We know the sons of Jacob, do we not? And notice now what God says is we can really stop all of this notion that anybody can run up on me, because if you keep doing that, I'm going to be having to start all over again with Moses and Aaron. That makes sense, doesn't it? So in his love, he's getting ready to put a check to all his foolishness about thinking that you're so holy, you can approach God without Christ. So what I need my ladies to do is be humble enough to sit on the side and observe from the vantage point of being a complementarian what is really largely a patriarchal exercise. Did that make some sense? I want you to get this, ladies. I need you to stay on the sideline of understanding that God is dealing with hierarchical principles. The hierarchical principle is that to whom much is given, much is required. The hierarchical principle here that I'm going to unpack, and I want you to catch it so that you can draw it out in your own life, is that God made the man first and then the woman. The hierarchical principle is that God set man up to be head over the family, head over his wife. Did that make some sense to you, children of God? And therefore, there is an emblem that runs throughout all the Old Testament when it comes to leadership in the home and leadership in the tribe and leadership in the nation. The one carrying the symbol of authority is the man. He's carrying a rod. It's a rod. Did you get it? He's carrying a rod. This is not equal employment opportunity. This is not, you know, uh, uh, any kind of misogynistic inference at all. This is about the way God set it up. And in, in, in God's system, this is how it goes. I wish I would catch any of my daughters running around with a rod. Did you hear what I just stated? All my granddaughters. Because what's going on today in my generation, rhetorically 
and sociologically is that women think that they can walk around with a rod too. But I'm here to tell you that that's genetically, biologically, and therefore sociologically impossible. Did it come home? Did it come home? Did it come home? Because you see today in this synthetic age of artificial intelligence and postmodern irrationalism and chopping up of body parts, girls are trying to get Raj now. Did it take you that long to get it? Did it take you that long to get it? Did it take you that long to get it? If it took you that long, it's because you're not really paying attention. This is what I love about God's word. And see, God's word, this is why everywhere that nations crumble, it's because they get rid of God's word. Everywhere that nations crumble, it's because they get rid of God's word. And everywhere that God's word is properly understood and interpreted, the people live in conformity to the will of God and God blesses them. Did I make some sense? All right. So we got a bunch of things to understand about the rod, don't we? Don't we, ladies? Don't we, gentlemen, now? You guys ought to know a little bit of something about the rod. If you don't, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) Point number one, the rods of men. That's what our God is dealing with. The rods of men. That's what he's dealing with. This is going to unpack and it'll be even more broadly clear in a moment. The rods of men. That's what we're seeing in verse one and two. This is the this is the language. This is the attitude. I want you to hear it back in chapter 16, verse three through five. I want to lay a little bit of a foundation. We'll run through this. Chapter 16, three through five. And they gathered themselves against Moses. Who did? The men. And against Aaron. And they said unto them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation of the Lord are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then, do you lift up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Again, you see this kind of facade of an indignation against the two men that God raised up. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Look at the next two verses. Here's how the response goes. And when Moses heard of it, he fell upon his face, which is what good men do when the family is engaging in treason. You don't just threaten your family, you pray for them. You go straight to prayer because if you have any sense, you know when your wife and your kids rebel against you, they're rebelling against God. If you are walking right and walking in your authority and establishing the rule of the rod, you are not the one that they are having a problem with, it's God. I can tell you that now, ladies and gentlemen. Notice the next, notice what it says. He spoke unto Korah and all of them, saying, even tomorrow, the Lord will show who is his, who is holy, and will cause them. Is that what it says? Him to come near to him, even him whom he hath chosen, will he cause to come near to him. This is a him thing, it's not a her thing. Because it's the men rebelling against God's authority. Do you see it? It's important for you to capture this. Subpoint A and B is simple. The rod is a universal symbol of what? It's a universal symbol of authority. That's all it is. Numbers 18 verses 1 and 2. I want to read that and then I'm just going to talk you through. You'll know this now. I love teaching. I love teaching. I love helping you to develop what we call theologically spiritual salience. Salience is the capacity to capture the important things of the Bible when you read it. 
Like when you read, if you read in a kind of monotone way, psychologically, you don't see the peaks and the valleys of biblical truth. You don't see the salient truths emerging for your attention to capture them so that you learn from them. That's what teachers are about. Are y'all following me? You can read a passage of scripture. And then when your teacher explains that passage, you'll go, I never saw that. That's what teaching is about. That's why you got to have a teaching church. And the priesthood, which is where we still are, is called to be a teaching ministry. We're to help you see the peaks of God's important propositions so that you value them as promises to you. We're there to help you see the valleys so that you can know the low points in which you and I must avoid. All of those things are critically important to developing a biblical sort of contour of what God is up to. And the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons in your father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. And you and your sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your what? Now, the priesthood was representing the people, were they not? Didn't I tell you that? Now, the priesthood was not made up of men and women. It was all men. And their rod was the rod of reconciliation between God and the people of God. Did that make some sense? And notice what the text says. They were to bear the iniquity of the people. What a responsibility. Did y'all get that? Bear the iniquity of the responsibility. What does that mean? When the people sin... It was the priesthood responsibility to help the people know that they sin and then to go through the protocols to get them right with God again. And every father is a priest in his home. Now, of course, in the New Testament, moms are also priests. But how incongruent would it be if mama's the only one going to the throne when the Bible is clear that the husband is the head of the house? He is to automatically have access to God for his crazy children. The children need parents that cover them. Right? That's how you grow up. This is why the Bible says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. God fully expects children to act a fool and fully expects parents to correct them on that. Now, the correction comes first with prayer and then gathering them together to remind them that they're out of the will of God. And it always starts with the men. Y'all got that? Always. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and rebellion against God, where did God go to Eve? No. Did he go to the serpent? No. He went to Adam. Where are you? You're, You're responsible to answer for this foolishness. And he did exactly what he was supposed to do. And so the symbol is that of authority. Let me give you a few words I want you to capture. I love for those of you who write, but if you have a good head, understand this. In the grammar, the rod here is being used in a particular way, but it is translated frequently staff, staff, staff. And that being the case, you already know prior to this event that Jacob walked with a staff. Isaac had a staff. Do you understand that? They had a staff. All right. Israel had a staff. Judah has a staff. Well, how do we know? Because Judah, the fourth child, used his staff the wrong way to hook up with Tamar. Did he not? I love my Bible. Do you love your Bible? He hooked up the wrong way, but we had a couple of good brothers come out of that because where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. I love my Bible. 
See, so God will give you the right tool, and if you use it the wrong way, it can have a negative outcome. He knows some of us going to use our rod the wrong way. But God is still good. Is he not good? Right. Right. And so we see these models running through and I'm going to teach you even more deeply what this rod symbolizes as is being laid out before us. It was invested in all the rulers as a form of authority. I love this one. Genesis 32:10. This is Tricky Jacob. Y'all remember brother Tricky Jacob? That's your big brother who couldn't keep a job straight, but always had money in his pocket. All right, so I'm going to leave it like that with you. That's, that's Jacob. He was called by God, loved of God, but he had problems growing up, didn't he? But he was never broke because he had skill sets. And here's one of them. When he hooked up with Laban because he wanted to his Jacob's problem was that he loved women too. And that's not a bad problem, by the way. Today, it has to be utterly celebrated. I'm so happy. I am so happy. Just married off my fourth daughter this weekend, and uh, she married a brother. I'll leave it like that. And uh, happy about it, right? Do you understand the crazy world I'm in? So happy about these things, because, you know, we weren't dealing with these crazy, chaotic, disruptive, backwards, uh, irrational things 100 years ago. We are today. And so I'm so happy. Anytime it lines up right even a little bit, I'm happy about it. Anytime it lines up right, even a little bit, because when it lines up right a little bit, you got potential there. And we can work with potential because we're saved on promise, are we not? Oh, there's some potential there. Some potential. That's where believers work. It says Jacob having a problem with his brother Esau. Remember Esau was going to run him down for stealing the birthright? And here's what he said. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have showed unto your servant. Now, this is Jacob talking to God. A great confession, is it not? Now, notice what he says. For with my staff, I have passed over this what? And now I am become two bands. You know what he means by that? He came over Jordan single. And now he has wives and children. That's what the rod does. You got that? That's what the rod does. I came over with my staff and now I have wives and children. That's the rod. You keeping up with me? Let me see if I can help you if you're just still kind of lost in space. The the next time this is used is further uh, further down in the Genesis narrative as as Jacob is dealing with, I, I, I re- erased it from my notes, as Jacob is dealing with Laban. And remember, Laban wanted to give Jacob all of the bad sheep and he wanted all the good sheep. And Jacob took all of the bad sheep. And what he would do was take rods and lay down rods in front of the sheep. Do you guys remember that account? He would lay rods in front of the sheep. And when the sheep saw the rods, that they had bloomed, they became fruitful and began to have all kind of flocks and herds because of the signification of the rod. Raise your hand if you're keeping up with me. I'm just trying to help you get how God works here, okay? The rods made the animals fertile and fruitful. And abundant so that about a year later, Laban looks up and Jacob got way more sheep than he do. They all healthy. They all prosperous. They all fat because of the rod. Y'all getting it now. 
because of the rod. Please understand the rod is significant in this regard. And so this rod, this staff that God is calling uh, Israel to deal with is to prove that God is the one that blesses the rod. It's what proves it. I want all y'all to bring your rod before the Lord. Is that what the text says? In the presence of of God, where God meets them. And that was in the Holy of Holies. So all 12 rods were to be laid out in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And what God says is, the rod that I touch will be the rod of the man that I am choosing. Am I making some sense? All right, point number two in our outline. Let me run up to that because you will see it when we do. The rod of what? Aaron. That's the rod of Aaron. Looking at verse six and seven in our text. And Moses spake to the children of Israel, every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece. For each prince, one rod, according to their father's house, even 12 rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. Is that true? Now, if you recall, the rod of Aaron, according to verse three, was really the rod of Levi. Because Levi is the head of the family, not Aaron, not Moses, not Kohath, not Memory, but, but Levi. And so now Aaron's name is attached, written on the rod, because now God is acknowledging that the whole tribe of Levi comes under the headship of Aaron since Levi is dead. Am I making some sense? God's getting ready to prove to all of Israel whose rod it is that actually has invested in it the real authority of God. You got to keep up with me on this, ladies and gentlemen. This is not just sticks and stones. These are real rod symbols of divine power invested to prove who is God's servant and who is not. And so Aaron was humbly called upon to write his name on his father's staff, which means all the men had a staff. They all had a staff. Write your name on Levi's staff. That means there would have been two names on that staff, Levi's and Aaron's. Y'all keeping up with me? Oh, how humbling that must have been for Aaron. I'm going there, but I want you to keep up. Remember, Aaron really didn't ask to do this. Moses didn't ask either. Remember, and Moses complaining because he couldn't talk. And God said, go get your brother Aaron. You and Aaron will work this out together for me. I'm getting ready to teach you something. So on a characterological level, on a human level, you don't have arrogance in Aaron. You don't have arrogance in Moses, do you? They weren't running to take positions of authority. They were called. I taught you that last week. Hebrews 5, 4. No one takes this position to himself, but he that is called. And the best way to know you're called is to prove to yourself that you're humble because God resists the proud. If he calls you and you're proud, he's going to humble you before you come. He will not use you in your pride. Am I making some sense? So Aaron and Moses had to follow another set of instructions, which fundamentally made both Aaron and Moses once again the the point of ire with Israel. Who is Aaron that he should put his name on the stick? You got all kinds of. In fact, if you go back to numbers, there are tens of thousands of Levites. Any one of those knuckleheads could have bought into that secular democratic ideology. I'm holy too. Why can't I put my name on the staff? Because God didn't choose you. Now, now we live in a country where we think that the way we get things done is voting. Is that right? 
Now, we, we, we say we live in a democratic process. Is that true? Yeah. Right. Both of those are a lie, by the way. Right. right. You don't elect anything. It just appears that you do. You don't elect anything. Selections are already made and you get to play the games, but the choice is already made. Right now, I would be fine with that in this country if God was making the choices. But it's important for you to know you're under a delusion if you think you live in a free democracy. You really don't. When the last time the government came to you and asked you, who do you want for president? See what I'm getting at? So I'm helping you as we pass through to understand that what we're dealing with is a spiritual battle here where the enemy is always trying to mimic God. And in his mimicking of God, he lies to people about freedom, which they really don't have. And God knows that none of us really are free because we're not wise enough in our freedom to do the right thing. Liberty without virtue is a what? It's an absolute curse. Why would God let me run the world and I'm a fool? Y'all see what I'm getting at? See, God still runs the world. You do know that, right? Didn't your Bible tell you in Psalm 75, God raises up kings and sets them down? Didn't Daniel tell you in chapter three, he raises the bases of men to rule over the people? So God knows how to raise up wicked men and righteous men to discipline us all so we can start going whenever they go in the office. Lord have mercy. Any ruler sitting on any throne really needs people praying for them. And I'm trying to help you here. Moses and Aaron need good people praying for them because Moses once again, Aaron once again is in a precarious situation, isn't he? This in a secondary way is about Aaron. God's getting ready to settle the matter because Israel wants to uh, impose their own leader. And God is getting ready to prove that Aaron is the man. I'm here to let you know Aaron is the man as we deal with the rod. But before we get there, let me argue with uh, God on the behalf of his choice that Aaron really proved himself uh, in a very fickle way to be the man. Because when you take the rod that Aaron has, if you notice over in uh, point number two, the rod of Aaron, we can clearly see his rod was a righteous rod, was it not? It was a righteous rod, obviously, in that Aaron's rod was the rod that what? Budded. But it wasn't just that it budded. Aaron's rod is the rod that God used all the way through the deliverance of the children of Israel. I want you to see this for a moment, okay? I want you to capture how God took two fickle men Use one rod to get them through the job. We are under subpoint A, a righteous rod. Remember Exodus 4, verse 2. Exodus 4, 2. This is the time when, when, when Moses is saying to God, I can't do it. And then God said, go get Aaron. He got Aaron. And notice what the verse said. The verse says, and the Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, what? A rod. Now, we'll find out here soon whose rod this is. But here goes the rod early on, even before Moses and Aaron deliver Israel out. They're, they're engaging with a rod. The rod becomes critical as a feature point, does it not? Notice what he says over in verse 20. Look over at verse 20 now. It's important. Notice what he says, chapter 4, verse 20. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the what? Rod of what? 
Now the rod that Aaron had is the rod that Moses took that is being called now the rod of what? So God uses men to get his work done. That's going to come home in a minute. Y'all keeping up with me? And God don't need a rod, but he's using Aaron's rod, which is in the hand of Moses, and he's calling it God's rod. Why? Because God's going to work through that rod, is he not? We know what happened when Aaron and Moses show up in front of Pharaoh. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Uh, chapter 7, verse 12. Notice what it says in the text. For they, every one of them, cast down his rod, and they became a serpent. Now, these were the rods of the magicians, because they were rulers. They cast down their rod, and their rod became a what? Now, notice this. But Aaron's rod did what? Swallowed up their rod. That's because his rod was a righteous rod. Now, I already taught, taught you guys what this was about. Theirs was a false miracle. Aaron's was a true miracle. But Aaron's rod is what God used to do it. And the swallowing up of the serpent is a picture of the swallowing up of death by the death of Jesus Christ who hung on the cross. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Death is swallowed up in victory. The grave loses its sting because one greater than the serpent swallows up the sting of death and sin by the instigation of the devil. Is that good enough for you? Right, it's important for you to see that. Aaron is being used by God even though he's a knucklehead. Is that right? All God said was, what's that stick in your hand? And so they're getting down and Aaron's rod is working. I love this. Exodus 7, verse 12. And the children of Israel spoke unto Moses for they cast down every man his rod, and they became a serpent. But Aaron swallowed their rod. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Remember what God had said? Pharaoh was going to see all these miracles, and he's still not going to repent. One more verse, one more verse, one more verse if it's there. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. So this is the first battle that Moses and Aaron are fighting in this uh, in this matter here. Um, and so again, Aaron's rod is being used. If you go over to chapter 17, verse five, you'll see it again because this is the time they're having a battle with Amalek. And remember, Moses is standing on a rock and this is where the account is given. Notice what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with thee of the elders of Israel and your what? Wherewith you smote the river, take in thine hand and go. I forgot. Remember, they were at the river, the Red Sea, and God told Moses to lift up the rod. The Red Sea divided. Then when they got on the other side, he said, let it down. And the Red Sea consumed their enemies. God is making it clear that the rod is going to play a role in delivering Israel all the way through. This is what's important about sub point A. It is a righteous rod that we are dealing with. It is also therefore to be understood as a rod of what? A rod of life. Go back to our text briefly and let's look at what the text says. It says over in verse 9 and 10 these words, and Moses brought all the rods from before the Lord unto the children of Israel and they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token. Why? Because Aaron's rod was the rod that did what? 
it, it blossom. Again, that's back in verse five. It shall come to be, come to be. I'm trying to see exactly where it lays it out. There it is, verse eight. And it came to pass on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron uh, in behalf of the house of Levi was budded, one, brought forth buds and bloomed, blossoming, not only that, yielding almonds. Now, I and that's something. Is that something? Can I talk about that a little bit? Because again, remember what I said, you and I can easily get tripped up under the assumption that our mind, the way we think, lines up with God's. Like you'll quickly walk past this passage thinking that was a kind of strange thing. They all lay their rods out and nobody's rod does anything but Aaron's. And Aaron's rod blossoms with flowers and buds and even it has what? Almonds. All right. This is what we call the principle of first mention in the scriptures. Whenever there is a lesson inherent in something that is symbolic and opaque and not quite clear, you got to go find out where God has actually brought that subject up again. I'm getting ready to teach you something. It's going to be Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah's a prophet, so he has a rod too. Jeremiah chapter one, let's look at verse 10. Jeremiah chapter one, 10. Remember Jeremiah said the same thing Moses said, Lord, I can't talk, don't use me, I'm a child. Remember that? And, and, and God touched Jeremiah's mouth and said, Jeremiah, you're fine. My word is in you. You're going to do all right. And what God does with his prophets is he gives them vision. He gives them the capacity to understand the landscape. He shows them where the enemy are, enemies are. He shows them where the blessings are because leadership has to be able to see. Am I making some sense? A prophet is a seer and he has to see what God sees. So this is what God says to Jeremiah. Um, I have set you this day over the nations, over the kingdoms to root out, pull down, destroy and throw down in the build and plant. That's Jeremiah, a little young boy. Now, notice just to help you theologically, Jeremiah is not doing this physically. He's not tearing down nations physically. He's not uprooting nations physically. He's not uprooting nations in a military way. He's doing it with God's word. He's prophesying against the nations and God is blessing that word as he providentially brings armies to destroy those nations in the name of the Lord because of the prophecy uttered. Did that make some sense? Therefore, for every one of us, if we call ourselves people of God with whom the word of the Lord is in us, either we are speaking truth or we're speaking lies. Now, if we're speaking truth and God is in it, you can expect that word to come to pass. If we're speaking lies and God is not in it, that word is going to sit there like a bunch of dead rods bringing no fruit at all. Did that come home? Yeah. Right. So, you know, among us on a human level, we love to argue about this person being this and that person being that. And you know what God is doing? God is just doing what God always does. He's choosing whom he's going to choose to be in leadership. And if he loves you enough to cause you to draw near to him, leadership is going to be godly. Leadership is going to be biblical. Leadership is going to be sound. Leadership is going to walk with God because leadership needs to see what God sees. Am I making some sense? Otherwise, leadership is foolish. Leadership is rebellious. Leadership is walking in a false vision. Leadership has a rod that does not bear fruit. It's just a dead stick. Now, here's what I want you to see. 
Notice what it says in verse 11, Jeremiah 1, 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? He's a seer, he has a see. And he said, I see a rod of a what? Almond tree. Now that's what we're dealing with. What God did was cause Aaron's rod to bud, blossom, flower, and bring forth what? And bring forth what? Which teaches you and me by what we would call reverse engineering that Levi cut a rod down from a tree that was an almond tree. Am I making some sense? Of course I am. Now think it through because I'm going to explain where the rod comes from. Because you got the rod doesn't come from nowhere. Y'all keeping up with me? We're doing a little horticulture as well as theology here. Watch it. Watch it. Moreover, here's what he says. Moreover, he said, what do you see? He says, I see a rod of an almond tree. Now look at verse 12, because verse 12 is the interpretation. Here it is. Watch it carefully. Here's what God says. Then said the Lord unto me, you have seen correctly, for I will hasten my word to perform it. Here's what happened both with Jeremiah and Aaron. God declared to Jeremiah that everything that he would give Jeremiah by prophecy will come to pass. God will hasten his word to bring it to pass. Did that make some sense? Well, how fast did God hasten his word to bring it to pass back in our context with Aaron and all the other 11 tribesmen? Right away, that rod, blossom, bloomed and bore fruit, did it not? Was that not a miracle? Can God raise up a gourd in one day? Can he turn water into wine? Can he cause manna to come down from heaven? God can do it in a nanosecond. This is what we call the miracle of grace affirming the prophetic power of his rod. Did that make some sense, child of God? Let's go back then because there are a few more things to learn. We're back at our text in, in Numbers chapter 17. And I'm so glad that God did this because the signification of the rod bearing fruit, bearing fruit, bearing fruit, bearing fruit signifies a connection between the rod, which is a mediator, and the originator of the rod, which is the source of the power that causes it to bear fruit. Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 15, I am the vine tree. You are the rods. The word rod simply means a branch. I remember years ago in Texas, Galveston to be exact, when I got out of line with my grandmama, she would tell me, to go out into the front yard and I would have to circumvent that mean female horse that liked to bite me when I wanted to get on her little coat. I had to go and get the rod of correction for myself. She also said get two of them so she could twine it together. It must have indicated that I was a pretty roughneck child for two rods that had to be twined together. But my grandmama knew something I didn't know. She loved me. See, if you don't love your child, you will spare the rod. 
but the rod will give reproof and correction to a rebel like me growing up in West Oakland. So when I come back from Texas, that would get me all the way through school. Remember the rod of correction on the backside of education. Did that make some sense? Today you go to jail for that. God saved me through it. I had a pretty good sense of educational skill sets and I got my you know, schooling done early and all that. I was still a rebel, but I'm so thankful that she taught me about the rod of correction. I tried to use it with my kids, had a little bit of trouble, but I would sneak it in every now and then anyway, as long as CNN wasn't watching and, and all the other news channels. Because a rod won't hurt you. I remember Mr. Williams at Hamilton, which is now Calvin Simmons, if something else, Mr. Williams would get at you with the rod of correction. It was always made out of wood. How come? Because the wood comes from a tree and the tree is where we're going. Somebody will get this in a moment. It's a rod of righteousness because it's able to be used by God to vanquish the powers of the enemy. It's a rod of life so clearly laid out in this account. And again, this is where this is where Jacob was using that rod for those sheep. And so what we get is a contradistinction in our account of the 11 men who dared to engage in this political uh, affrontery, if you will, if they were all humble. When Moses came to them and said, bring your rod, they would have said, you know what, God, why don't you just choose? Did that come home? If they were all humble and they really knew it would be better for God to choose than man, wouldn't it be for us to just say, you know what, I don't even want to have nothing to do with this. God, you choose who you want. Now, we already know God had already chosen. Listen to it for yourself as we get ready to move on. Psalm 65, verse 1 through 4 teaches you the doctrine of election. See, we love to talk about election on a political level, but the reality is you and I can't be saved if God didn't choose us. I'm sorry. You and I only deserve to go to hell apart from the grace of God. The reason you're saved is because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He elected you in love and then called you by his grace. Because he wants you to be something that our text is talking about. And so this is about to come home in a minute. Notice what the uh, psalmist says. Praise waits for you, O God in Zion. Is that true? Why would the people of God praise God? Because he's God. Because he's good. Because he's merciful. Because he's gracious. Because he's righteous. Because he's kind and long-suffering. Gentleness. God is the God that the Bible says he cares for us as children. A father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. You and I know that God never, ever gives us what we deserve. Is that true? That's why we worship him. And then on top of it, we worship him because he actually gives us what we don't deserve. Good health and good strength and open doors and good jobs. And even when we mess up some doors, he opens up other doors. God forgives. God is long suffering. God is forbearing with his people. Praise waits for you in Zion because in Zion are men and women who know their God. I am and I hope you are too the object of God's goodness and mercy. I wake up every day pinching myself saying, I'm still saved. 
from 18 years old to now still saved by the grace of God. Nothing but a hell bound sinner by nature, but a child of the living God by grace. And grace is the way God saves. Grace is the way he saves. So I sing the praises of God. Do you? And unto you shall be the vow performed. What vow? The saints will acknowledge God because of his salvation to them. They will praise him, honor him, and worship him. We said that when we got saved. O thou that hearest prayer. Here it is again. O thou that hearest prayer. Unto thee shall all flesh come. Here is a prophecy of the preaching of the gospel way before it happened. For Jesus said, go into all the world and do what? preach the gospel and men and women from every nation, tribe and kindred would come to the true and the living God. But they got to come through a man that God chooses. What's his name? No other name under heaven or earth by which men shall be saved. But the name of the Lord Jesus, I am the way. Here it is. Look at the next verse. Verse three, iniquities prevail against us. Our transgressions you shall purge them away. This is why our elder, whenever he opens up Elder Angelo, he always opens up confessing our sins. I don't care who you are. You come in this place. First thing we're doing is saying, Lord, we're wrong. You right. First thing we're doing is saying, Lord, we don't think right. You think right. We messed up. We messed up bad. Lord, have mercy on us. The first thing we're doing is confessing our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from unrighteousness and then draw us to himself. Like the house. I'm looking right now in the house. This ain't nothing but a bunch of sinners. Not one of y'all are righteous in yourself. Your righteousness is a gift that came to you by God's goodness. And that's the reason you can praise him. And it all started with a rod. It all started with a rod. (laughs) All right, verse four. Let me keep going so I can wrap this up. Blessed is the woman whom you choose. See, I can say that safely here today. Can I say that safely? The man. Blessed is the man whom you chose. You got it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this down before I go on because we got 15 minutes. We got to do the Lord's table today. I want your heart right. The world I live in hates God. Ain't no doubt about it. And therefore, it hates God's system. There's no doubt about it. It, hate, it hates the fact that God set up men. Did that make some sense? And therefore, it hates Jesus. See, Jesus is the man we're talking about. He is the him, the H-I-M that we're really talking about here. Am I making some sense? He is the great high priest of all his people. He's the one mediator between God and man, is he not? He is our great Melchizedek, is he not? He's greater than Aaron, though Aaron foreshadowed him. Did not God choose his son to draw near to him in order for the rest of us to come? The only reason we come to God is because Jesus is our vouchsafe. I cannot have a right relationship with God in my sinful nature apart from Christ. He stands in the gap and he intercedes for me. His precious blood has allowed me to stand before God in his righteousness and I am accepted in the beloved. So that when I talk to God, I talk to the Father through the Son by the Holy Ghost. And God hears me through the Son because of the Holy Ghost. And God says yes to me through Christ. 
because of who I am in Christ. And he does the same thing for you as well. Listen to it again. I only quoted part of the verse. I want you to get it. I want you to get it. Notice this. I'm going to tie another verse and we're going to run this thing home. Blessed is the man whom you have chosen and caused to approach unto you that he may dwell in your courts. Do you see it? Because of him, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, even your holy temple. If it wasn't for a he, there wouldn't be a we. If it wasn't for a he, there wouldn't be a we. The only reason there's a we, the people, is because of a he, Jesus, the Christ, who approached God in our behalf with righteousness in his hands. Am I making some sense? Yes. Now listen again to John chapter 15, verse five through eight. I want you to get it because I want to nail it as we go home. I love what Jesus says. He's the tree. Now he's God's rod. I'm going to make that plain in a moment, but he's divine and we are the branches. That's the he we I just talked about. Did you get it? He's the tree. We are the what? We are the rods. We are the staff too. I'm going to show you that in a minute, but I want you to think that through. Because if the rod represents authority, if it represents power, invest it. Do not we all walk in the authority of God in Christ? Does not every man, woman, and child who is in Jesus have authority with God? Don't we have designated authority according to the regions of our responsibility and the scope of our duties? Does not a mother have authority over the children? Does not the father have authority of the house? Does not godly people have authority over the domain that they operate in? Didn't he say, tarry here until you be endued on high with the third person, so shall you be given authority. Do we have it? We have it because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. I want you to hold to that promise. Listen to what he says. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much what? So you see that Aaron could have never brought forth fruit if he didn't abide in God. And it was evident that those other 11 fellows were walking in rebellion, were they not? That's why they're going to die in the wilderness too. But God's going to use Aaron to bring them up to the promised land. Y'all get what I just stated? I already know the outcome. All of them are going to die, but Joshua and Caleb and the 20 under. But Aaron and Moses will get them all the way up to the promised land. Remember, I told you they all died in that last year. So for the next 38 years, guess who the high priest is? Aaron. He's the one that's got to stand in the gap when they act a fool. See, yes, they are going to die in the wilderness. But they can still learn God's ways. In fact, they're going to have to. Because God's plan is not going to change over these 38 years. They're going to have to understand that God's ways are fixed. His purposes are clear. His rules are right. And they will die and die and die. And God's word will remain the same. Will it not? It's important for us to know. This is why, you know, you get people who will come into a church like this or any church that's being faithful to God's word. And you got people who want everything to change every two years. Have you ever met these people? These are called temporary folks. They want everything changes. This is the contemporary world we live in. They want it all to change all the time. But there's some things that must not change. God cannot change. 
His word cannot change. It's forever settled in heaven. The gospel cannot change. The power of God won't change. Conversion is the same way it was in the first century today. Men and women must, be, must believe the word of the living God. It must be engrafted in their soul. There are things that must not change or we're going to hell. Am I making some sense? They must not change. They must not change. Men must never not be men. Women must never not be women. Children don't get to rule over their parents. There are some things that must never change. And whoever is on the Lord's side, let him operate with the God that changes not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Am I making some sense? Right. Never be ashamed of certain things that don't change. There's so much stuff changing all the time. And the thing, next thing you look up is changing back. Am I making some sense? They run out there with a new thing, don't they? This is new. We tell them, no, it's not new, it's old. We saw it before, it's going to come back around. Why? Because the devil loves selling you lies on new things. The only thing that's new is the grace of God in Christ in the new creature. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. To be new is to be right with God. To be new is to be in Christ. To be new is to know him in his grace. To be new is to be under the new covenant. To be new is to walk with a God that's able to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm here to tell you, you can't do it for yourself. You need God. And that's an old message. That's an old message. For without me, you can do nothing. Look at verse six. Look at verse six. Notice what it says. Jesus is teaching us about how the rod bears fruit. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch. Didn't that just happen to the other 11 rods? And is withered and men gather them and cast them in the fire and they're burned. Bad outcome if you're not in Jesus. Verse seven, I just want you to see it. I'm going to go on and tie this up. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask me what you will and it shall be done to you. Boy, is that not a good promise? Is that not a promise from God? That's how you know the rod, the branch, the staff is connected to the tree. You walk with him and then you can ask God and God will answer your prayers according to his will. That's what my Bible tells me. But it's because I'm walking with him and he's talking with me and I'm attached to the vine because apart from him, I can't get anything done. If I had time, I'd show you the the nuance of the grammar there. It's so beautiful, but let me make an application. He, going back to verse six, this is a promise to you. I want to give it to you before I go on. If a man abide not in me, he's, I'm sorry, verse five. Notice what verse five says. I am the vine and you are the branches. See the he? That's first person singular. That's a promise to you. He. That's a nominative masculine singular. He that abides in me and I in him. Singular relationship. Close relationship. Christ in you. You in Christ. Am I making some sense? Christ in you. You in Christ. Watch this. The same brings forth what? It, It makes sense to me. Because the fruit bearer is Christ himself. I just happen to be a branch hanging out with the Lord Jesus. 
Now we're learning about that in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. This is about learning about your gifts, knowing how your gifts work. But fundamentally, believers are called to be available because they're in relationship with God. There's all kind of work to be done. All kind of work to be done, but you have to be available. And if you're attached, you cannot not be available. The only reason you're not available is because you're not attached. Am I making some sense? Now, I love the nuance here. I'm going to share it with you and keep going. For without me, none of you can do anything. He gave the promise on a personal level, and then he brought it publicly to say, without me, I don't care how many of you there are, nothing will get done. Do y'all see that? That's the, that's the takeaway for you now. Let's go on back and finish some insights into our third and final point. So Aaron, the high priest of the people of God, is embarrassed because God has chosen him and indicated that his ministry would still be productive and fruitful over the next 38 years. And we know that that is the case. And sub point C under point number two says his rod is a rod of what? Remembrance. Look at verse 10 and 11. We know this is the way that God catechizes you and me. He's always calling you and I to remember things. He's calling us to remember because we easily what? Forget. Verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. And you shall quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. And Moses did so as the Lord had commanded him. What is the point? The rod was taken and it was placed the same place where the Ten Commandments were. It was placed the same place where the uh, bowl of manna was. It was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all keeping up with me? Get ready to show you how God works. God told uh, Aaron and Moses, take that rod, because Moses, Aaron ain't going to be walking around with a rod budding full of almonds. He ain't, he ain't doing that. Put that up before the Lord in the tabernacle, because in the tabernacle is where God's Shekinah glory abode. It abode, it abode on the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember that? That's called the Ark of the Testimony. Inside the Ark were three testimonies. The testimony of Israel breaking God's law, the testimony of Israel despising God's manna, and the testimony of Israel rebelling against God's high priest. Did that make some sense? And what God said is, lay that up as a remembrance that the children of Israel die not. In other words, you and I are to remember, by nature, we rebel against God. And God doesn't forget it. The only reason he doesn't punish it is because of the blood that's poured on top of the mercy seat. And that blood poured on the mercy seat is the death of the high priest who stands in your behalf to bear your iniquity so that you live even though he died. Is God good or not? And it just happens to be that the person who is God's high priest is also God's son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him. I believe on him, do you? I know I believe because God has forgiven me for 40 something years and I don't deserve it. But the blood always keeps its power. It always cleanses from sin. It always washes me clean. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I've violated God's law, have you? I've despised the manna, have you? I've challenged the authority, have you? 
Yes, and yet God doesn't kill us on the marriage of his son, Jesus. Can you see him hanging there? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The reason we are here today, happy in Jesus, is because we have a God who fixed it, that we don't go to hell because of our rebellion, all because of him who has the rod. All right. Let's talk briefly about this rod, the rod of Christ. As we're talking about the rod, we're talking about the staff, we're talking about the branch. We are really talking about the person who personifies. His name is Jesus. I love the way Isaiah puts it. I'm going to run you through three verses and I'm going to make some observations and we're done. We're going to have the Lord's table. And we would never even enjoy the table if Jesus wasn't the rod we're talking about. Okay? If he wasn't the branch, if he wasn't the staff, if he wasn't the seed. See, the rod is the grounds upon which the seed comes. Did y'all get that? Right, this is about a humanity through God's rod by which you and I get to partake of the divine nature. I'm making some sense now. Am I making sense? Right, it's important for you to get. Listen to what the scriptures tell us. I'm in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, if you don't mind. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, this is the prophecy given concerning Messiah. And there shall come forth a what? And there shall come forth a what? A rod out of the stem of Jesse. That is the agricultural analogy of a tree. It's a stem, right, of Jesse. Jesse is the father of who? David. David is the great, 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 great grandparent of Jesus who is called the rod of God. Did that make some sense? Jesus is the authority of God. He is the rule of God. He's the staff of God. He is God's branch, is he not? And notice what it says. He shall grow out. Jesus shall grow as a branch out of his roots, meaning out of Jesse's humanity, out of Jesse's son, out of Jesse's God, by the way, because Jesse's tied to Abraham and Abraham is the one with the promise. Verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Is not Jesus the one upon whom the Holy Ghost rested in his baptism? Right. It rested upon him the spirit of wisdom. We're going to talk about that Tuesday and understanding the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of the what? Fear of the Lord. Now, nobody walked in these qualities on this earth like our master. Would you agree? No one walked in these qualities. Here again, this is another way to see the language. I'm in Jeremiah 23, 5. A couple more verses, we'll shut it down. Notice what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 5. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. What is his name? King Jesus. He shall reign and prosper, execute judgment and justice in the earth. And ladies and gentlemen, whether you know it or not, he's been doing that for 2000 years. Now, I love, again, this rod analogy because it's it's so very consistent and very clear that Jesus is God's rod. Zechariah chapter three, verse eight gives it to us again. I'm moving to a few more verses and I'm shutting it down. Notice what he says in Zechariah three. Hear now, O Joshua, high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for there are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant who? This was the last high priest of that Old Testament order headed into the book of Malachi that would point to the first high priest of the New Testament. His name would be Jesus, and he's called the branch. Now, that's because a branch is connected to a what? Y'all got it. Jesus is both the tree and the... 
because he has assumed our human nature. That's what makes him the branch. He's the God man. And what makes us branches in him is that we're in Christ. See, and so to be in Christ is to have the blessings that Christ is from the father. This makes you a branch. This makes me a branch. It makes us a rod in the sense that we get to exercise authority. Here's another word. I want you to get it because I just want you to be blessed by this. The most prominent way that this word rod is translated all through the Old Testament is the word tribe. Tribe. T-R-I-B-E. Lord, help your people. A tribe is a group of people who are part of the same family. They are branches in the tree. Did that come home? Now think about that. A rod is a tribe? Yes. By one man, righteousness enters into the world and saves people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. So that when you know the branch, and you're part of the branch, you are a tribe of branches in the vine tree. We're all part of the family of the living God. Some of y'all will get it. The only reason you're slow on this is because you don't understand the blessing of corporatism. We're so single-minded in our orientation. But I must let you know, if you are a rod, you have to be connected to a tree. If you're connected to a tree, you're connected to a bunch of other rods in the tree. That makes you part of a tribe. And God's tribe are God's people connected to Christ. And we walk in that same authority. We get to enjoy the same fruitfulness, the same blessings. We are part of that spiritual rod, that living branch. Here it it is again one more time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. This comes out of Psalm 2. I'm done here. I want you to think about the authority of this. And his tail, the enemy's tail, drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child. Who was that child? Who was that child? As soon as it was born. Was that not the account that we always talk about at the birth of Christ with Herod wanting to destroy the man child? He had to go down into Egypt. So you're getting a heavenly view of an earthly conflict. Even Jesus in the womb is attacked by the enemy because that seed the enemy knew would become a what? A rod of authority and power and dominion. Look at the next verse. Look at it. Verse five. And she brought forth a man child. Who was the she? Mary, the mother of Jesus, brought forth the man child who was to what? That's what the rod does rule. Does Jesus rule? God has made him both Lord and Christ. He sits at the right hand of God right now. This is what the church needs to learn all over again. We're not waiting for Jesus to rule. Jesus has been ruling for 2,000 years. All power and all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. That's why you go into all the world and preach the gospel. He wouldn't send us into the world with the gospel if he didn't have control over the hearts of men, would he? Right. He has to go before us, change people's hearts. So when the gospel comes, they believe it. The Holy Ghost has to hunt you down, sinner, and work on you. Now, he might have an assignment to hang out with you for 10 years before you break. And you're wondering why it is your conscience constantly bothers you. 
because the Holy Ghost is running up on you, making sure you don't go to hell before you bow the knee to King Jesus. And that's because there's a great high priest in heaven who ever lives to make intercession for us. Hold on now. And so if we got a whole group of people who know the Lord Jesus and the pardon of their sins, if we're rods with him, then we're also a priesthood. Do we not get to call on God who has all power and all authority? And do we have do we not have a great high priest who knows how to execute that authority and hunt sinners down in the preaching of the gospel? And put the handcuffs of grace on them, which is what I pray for. And the holy tow truck of heaven just puts it in reverse and starts towing the sinner in little by little. Tow the sinner in. Let him rebel. Let him holler. Let him act a fool. Let him clown. Let him go to jail. Let him get addicted. I know it looks bad, but he ain't dead yet. God's dealing with him. Bring him on in. Bring him on in, because one day, one day, one day, he's going to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, the sinner. Okay? It don't matter where he is, the voice of the Lord will be able to hear him, because the seed was sown in the heart long ago. And this is why we sow it in them as children, because it does not matter where you are on the planet. God made everything. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's the God of all flesh. He's able to hunt you down no matter where you are. This is our joy. Is it not our joy? I ain't got to go nowhere. I don't have to go anywhere. All I got to do is keep talking to my God. And every now and then say, Lord, remember my child. Remember my rebel child. Remember my rebellious children, Lord. And save him for your glory's sake. Save, that's what he's doing with Israel. He could have he opened up the ground, swallowed them all up. Right. See, we get to come to the table now. We get to come to a table of grace. It's a table for sinners. Am I making sense? I want all you men in the house to straighten up your game. And carry your rod properly. Because it has a purpose. And it's not to act a fool. And to spill yourself all over this crazy world in ways that don't honor God. Am I making some sense? Right. And you sisters don't accept anything but righteous branches. Nothing but righteous branches. Nothing but righteous branches. That's all you want. If you're not a righteous branch, you got to go. Because you know they're not connected to the vine. They can't bless you. All they can do is curse you. That's all they can do is curse you. Without him, you can do nothing. Amen and amen.